Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So this is week eight in our series on the book of John. Uh, I do want to go back and touch on a couple of verses that we looked at last week that I had no comment on because um, the last time that we met, we were talking about the temple cleansing in Matthew and Mark and Luke, the temple cleansing when Jesus goes into the temple space and overturns the tables and empties out the money of the money changers and says, you have turned this house into a den of thieves. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that story is at the end of Jesus' ministry, whereas in John, that story has been taken from the end chronologically and placed in the beginning of Jesus's ministry as if to say there's this, um, this tie between Jesus and the temple that we have to keep in the back of our minds. John is trying to make this, this claim that Jesus is the ladder connecting heaven and earth. John is very stylistic in how he's telling the story. He's doing so in an important and specific way. And at the end of chapter two, I want to read these verses again because they sort of serve as a launch pad into not only the story that we're gonna be looking at tonight and next week, but the, the next three or four different stories of Jesus having conversations with people. John is a discourse-driven gospel. He has Jesus having these long conversations with people and teaching them about who he is and how they should respond. This is the end of John chapter two, and then we'll continue on into John chapter three, where we will read a good number of verses this week just to set the context. We're not gonna talk about all um, 21 of them this evening, but I do want you to hear them and keep them in the back of your mind, not only tonight, but as we go throughout the week. This is John chapter two, beginning in verse 23. It says, now while he was in Jerusalem, that he is Jesus, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. This is at the end of the temple cleansing narrative and it's, and it's, it's functioning as this sort of hook into John chapter three and following. John chapter three, it says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born anothen. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born anothen. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. I want you to take note of this. End quotes. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The word of God for the people of God. So what we have here in this passage, according to Gail O'Day, she says, throughout the fourth gospel, people approach Jesus confident in their knowledge of themselves and of Jesus. And the encounter with Jesus challenges those certitudes. People come to Jesus with some amount of confidence in who he is and in who they are in themselves and also the knowledge that they have about how the world works. But according to Gail O'Day, she says those conversations and those encounters Jesus challenges the certitude that people have, and this is what we understand about Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes onto the scene, he shows up and he's introduced as a Pharisee. Not only is he a Pharisee, not only is he a religious leader of the time, and and for um, John's audience, the Pharisees were one of the ruling classes within the people of Judaism. It also says that Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish ruling council, that Nicodemus later on is uh, is, is referred to as Israel's teacher by Jesus. He says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. And we also see that Nicodemus seems to be a believer, kind of, sort of. He's showing up to Jesus to have these conversations, and some people even think that he might be a representative for other quasi-believing Jewish individuals at the time, and Nicodemus shows up to ask the questions that everyone is wanting to know. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the member of the Jewish ruling class, the teacher of Israel, and sort of, kind of, a believer, says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Now remember, in John chapter 3, as we're learning about Nicodemus, link it back to the end of chapter 2, 
where it says that people were seeing the signs that Jesus was doing. They were believing in him, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew the hearts of the people. It's a difficult passage. We don't necessarily know what to make of it, but we can see that with these two texts linked together, that Nicodemus is kind of cast in a negative light. He's showing up and saying, I believe in you because of the signs that you're doing, and nobody could do the signs that you're doing except one who is coming from God. Also, back up for a second. In the book of John, think about the structure, think about the stories that we have heard up to this point. What are these signs that Jesus is doing? The only one that we really have a strong recollection of is Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And now there's all these other things that are going on and these things are causing people to believe or at least to inch out and wonder what is going on with this person. And Nicodemus himself says, we've seen these signs that you're doing. We don't know what that includes. Again, another proof that John does not care about chronological accuracy. There might be, uh, this story might have happened at a different place in Jesus's life, but these things that were, that were happening that were causing the Jewish uh, leaders to, to question, it says that no one could perform the signs that you're doing. We don't know what they were if God were not with him. There's a question underneath of the question for Nicodemus, namely, who are you? What are we to do with you? How do we understand you? And these questions are asked in darkness. Now, I kind of shied away from this tidbit because this is the one that gets preached on all the time. Nicodemus in chapter three in the middle of the night sneaks out and talks to Jesus so that no one will know because he doesn't have a lot of faith and he doesn't want anybody to see what he's doing. It preaches really well, doesn't it? It's like Nicodemus under the cloak of darkness and maybe he's wearing a hood saying, Jesus, we've seen these signs that you're doing. Tell us, who are you? <laughs> like, we, we don't know what's happening here. Now, some people have said that this, is, this might be typical of, of rabbis at the time because they're so involved, not only in their daily tasks, but they, they were learning at night that it wasn't so weird for Nicodemus to go and talk to Jesus at night. Uh, it might also be that, that for some people, their, their learning extended well into this period. So some people have downplayed the weirdness or the darkness of this. However, for John, as much as I would like to get away from it, it seems as though that there's an, an, an overtone of, of metaphorical significance, of symbolic significance that Nicodemus is showing up in the middle of the night. And for John... What happens in the darkness is not good. Nicodemus is showing up to ask these questions, these questions that perhaps he doesn't want anyone to know that he is asking at, at the risk of his status, at the risk of his, of his uh, position as a teacher in Israel, at, at risk of his, his status as a Pharisee. He's going to talk to the one that's stirring the pot a bit, the one that in John's gospel has just overturned the tables in the temple, the primary center of Jewish religiosity. And Nicodemus is now going to talk talk to Jesus and not wanting anyone to know. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus. 
who has asked this question and Jesus doesn't really address it. He says, very truly, I tell you. In the Greek, this is amen, amen. It happens three times in the first uh, nine to 10 verses, I think. Every time uh, Nicodemus says something, Jesus comes back with amen, amen, let go. Very truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born anothen. Now, I don't know what your Bible background is. I don't know if you can import an English word there where I have placed the Greek. Um, I apologize for doing that, especially through our corporate reading of this passage, but I wanted to do it so that we could go back to the first century context because there's, there's an overtone of this word that is ambiguous. It's unclear uh, in the text which direction you could go in because back in this time, anothen, it's a Greek word, and it can mean one of two things. It can mean again, you must be born again, or it can mean you must be born from above. When Jesus uses these terms to Nicodemus, it's pregnant with ambiguity. And Nicodemus inserts his own opinion as to what he believes the proper way of understanding this is. Now, the reason why in our corporate reading of this text, I put anothen instead of one of the two is because when you privilege one of the two, you make the other one a secondary category. Most English Bibles have, um, you must be born again. And then in the footnote, it says, or from above. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is, is being ambiguous on purpose to sort of force Nicodemus to make an interpretive choice. And he makes the wrong interpretive choice. He says that Jesus is thinking that he must be born again, which leads him to say, you think I should crawl back up into my mother's womb and be born again? And all of us collectively say, oh, gross, Nicodemus, what are you doing? It's a good thing it is the middle of the night because nobody else should hear that. But here we are talking about it. My mom's in the room for crying out loud. It's not something, no. He's kind of, he's going over the top here to say that this is, this doesn't make any sense when Jesus says you must be born again, but this is not how Jesus is using the term here in this passage. He seems to be almost saying you must be born from above and in so doing, you must be born again, but there's, there's more to it than what Nicodemus was seeing. Uh, Marianne May Thompson says that Jesus is referring to a new life, one that commences with being begotten from above. It's a life that entails a new family, a new identity, a new set of commitments. This is what Jesus was asking Nicodemus to do or to be on board with. If you want to follow me, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be a part of this movement, you must be born Anothen, you must be born from above. Nicodemus had no categories for this because he was a good Jew in the first century. In fact, he was a good Jew who believed that he was already in. He didn't need to do anything else because just by privilege of who he was, by privilege of his birthright, he was in. He didn't need to experience anything else. He already had experienced this. And T. Wright says that the Judaism that Nicodemus and Jesus both knew had a good deal to do with being born into the right family. This is what most of the Old Testament is about. This is what 
what most of our series on Galatians was about, the rights of inclusion in, in, in the, into that Jewish identity. What mattered was being a child of Abraham. What mattered was having the right DNA. What mattered was having the right parents, the right lineage, the right family tree. And if you did, you were in, and you did not need to be born again or born from above. Now, though, according to N.T. Wright, Jesus is saying that God is starting a new family in which ordinary birth isn't enough. You need to be born all over again. You need to be born from above. And all the Gentiles in the room should say, praise Jesus. Because what Jesus is doing is he is beginning to open the door to inclusion that goes beyond Nicodemus, that goes beyond DNA, that goes beyond lineage, that goes beyond your birthright to include people who will believe in Jesus, the one who is lifted up for us on the cross. Nicodemus had no categories for this, which is why he says something ridiculous like, I'm supposed to crawl back up into my mom's womb. No, Nicodemus. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter. The first phrase is, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now we can't enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. And again, some people have, have tried to break this down, saying, well, sometimes water can, can symbolize amniotic fluid. Sometimes water can symbolize seminal fluid. Sometimes water can, can represent all these sorts of things that lead us to a real natural birth. And then you must have a spiritual birth too. But Jesus seems to be be doing something different by linking these two concepts together. You must be born of water and the Spirit. And he takes us back, perhaps, to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is especially the case because, remember, when Jesus says, you're a teacher of the law and you don't get this. This wasn't out of nowhere. Jesus is saying there's some hooks upon which you, Nicodemus, should understand what I'm talking about. It's in your book. And you don't know you don't know what I'm talking about? Remember Ezekiel chapter 36? When God is talking about what will happen as, as the kingdom is being restored. He says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all of the countries and bring you back into your land. Israel had suffered a great defeat. And now God is talking about the moment when he will bring them all back together. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. You will be my offspring. You will be my children. You will be the ones born from me and I will be your God. Linking these two images of water and spirit Nicodemus still has no categories for this. How, how can this be? What are you saying? What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. All of the traditions that I know, all of the teachings that I've studied, all of the different rabbis that I've sat under, they don't talk about this. And now here we are in the middle of the night and you're telling me all this weird stuff that seems to be going in a completely different direction than anything that I have ever learned. 
Craig Keener says Jewish people were born into the covenant by natural birth, requiring a second birth to enter it was beyond Nicodemus's understanding. What Jesus is doing is challenging Nicodemus's certitudes. In this chance encounter that he has with Nicodemus in the middle of the night, he's taking all the things that he knew or all the things that he thought he knew and he is turning them upside down and saying, Nicodemus, it's not actually what you think. It's something different. You must be born anothen. You must be born from above. You must be born of water and spirit. You must be part of this family, this new thing that God is doing. Jesus is challenging the things that Nicodemus thinks that he knows. And he is saying in the process, something new is taking place. This passage is is so theologically dense. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks looking at it. We're not going to. You can breathe a sigh of relief. It's okay. Maybe this week and next week. I do think we should talk about John 3.16 at some point. We will. The reason why I also wanted you to see in, in that corporate reading, when I noted where the quotation marks ended, there's a huge scholarly discussion as to what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and what John is saying about what Jesus has said to Nicodemus. And at least for the translators and editors of the NIV, they end Jesus's conversation at 3.15. So when we get to John 3, 316, that's not red letters. That's John continuing the thought. For God so loved the world. It's also interesting that people would say it's not that God loved the world this much, but the way that that language is working, it's more uh, correctly uh, understood as this is how God loves the world, by giving his son. Not to say that God doesn't love us a whole lot, um, Kate was just telling me a cute little anecdote and any parent has one of these in their back pocket. They were saying like, Abe, do you know how much I love you? I love you as big as a, as a tree. And then we went, to, um, went on vacation to Charleston, which is home to this big live oak called the angel oak. And it's got branches and roots and it just stretches everywhere. It's got guards that say, you can't touch this tree, get off that tree, no selfies by this tree, get out of this tree. You can't touch it because it's so old and it's propped up. But Abe in his response said, mom, I love you as much as an angel oak. And it just like, Kate melted and it was a nice little, little moment. And Nice job, Abe, good, good job. People are wondering if Jesus is the one who's speaking this classic text or someone else is speaking it. Doesn't matter a whole lot, but I just thought it'd be fun for you to at least see where those quotation marks are. They vary from different English translations. In this passage, the stuff that we're looking at here and now, we have this middle of the night conversation with Nicodemus who has no categories for what Jesus is doing. And he says things like, how can this be? This doesn't comport, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't line up with anything I've ever heard or been taught. But Jesus is stressing the newness that is taking place in his ministry. I'm terrible with conclusions to sermons. You know that. Sometimes I'll just have a slide that says conclusion, and then I'll have to think on my feet and try to tie something together. In my preparation of this passage, I, 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 I can identify with not having the right categories for when Jesus uh, encounters me in those moments. 
because the thing that I've inherited doesn't always line up. What I was taught as a kid was believe the right things, say the right prayers, you'll be okay. But I know in my own life, I have felt that that um, has left a void. I'm a nerd, you know that. I love reading books. I love thinking the right things, or at least what I believe are the right things, and thinking them charitably amongst other people in good conversation. But if that isn't added to the things that we do to demonstrate our solidarity with our fellow human being, if that isn't used to demonstrate the goodwill in our hearts to help people to be a physical, tangible representation of restoration on this place, if that's not happening, then we can think all the right things that we ever want to and it won't matter at all. You can pass the test but fail because you're not opening yourself up to the things that Jesus is asking you to do. And at least I know that in my life, when I have approached him, I have been certain and I have had that certitude and there's nothing you can say to change my mind because I've already figured this out. I've got this book on lockdown. I've prayed all the right prayers. I know all the right answers. Jesus, it's fine. Let's just, you know, we'll just say hi and it's good. But then there's those moments when the certitude begins to crumble because of an encounter that I was not ready for in the middle of the night under the veil of darkness, and I say, what is going on here? I'm doing something new. You must be born Anothen. You must be born from above. I've also, as I've been contemplating this, a lot of times we have privileged our testimony I, I'm a product of Christian school education, which meant you go to chapel once a week. And in those chapels, you would always have people that came in and they would tell their testimony. They would tell their story about how they came to the saving grace of, of Jesus Christ. And usually those stories, they are, they're, they're traumatic. They're train wrecks. It's like, I was um, addicted to this drug. I was this close to death. I almost died 19 different times. And then from the gutter, Jesus pulled me out and said, you are mine. And we're all sitting there like, man, that's really cool. I don't have a story like that. I haven't done anything. I just play video games when I go home and, every, and my life is good and I wish my life was terrible so that I could have a good story to tell. You know, like you, you've privileged that, that testimony that's so traumatic. And sometimes we've looked back to that, that moment when it all began for us, regardless of how that story looks, but we haven't really thought hard about what it looked like from day one to now. We haven't thought hard about transformation. We haven't thought hard if we are actually living in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. We aren't thinking about if we are living as one who has been born anothen. We aren't thinking about the way that we love our neighbors. We aren't even thinking about the way that we love God because you see, one time way back then, I had this thing that happened. And it made me feel a certain way, so I know I'm in. I've got this certitude, and it's all good, Jesus. You see, I've got it. It's under, it's under control. And we don't think about the transformation that is supposed to be taking place, the things that we are supposed to be caring about, the way that we are supposed to be living for Jesus. I think that we can take this story of Nicodemus and we can ask a bunch of questions about it. We can poke a lot of holes into it. But the thing that I want you to think about this evening is pretty simple. Are we living in a way that Jesus is wanting us to? 
are our lives demonstrable proof of the transformation that we have experienced, not way back then, but right now? Are we allowing ourselves to be used by God in ways that we could never have thought possible? Are we allowing our certitude to crumble at the feet of King Jesus when he is asking us to go in a different direction? I would even add to this, are we allowing ourselves to go beyond our box and our, our individual theologies when the text and when our experience is leading us beyond that? Or are we so dead set on keeping everything certain and nice and neat that we don't want to enter into the mess of understanding where Jesus is leading us and guiding us? I hope this evening, as we, as we move ourselves into this really rich theological conversation of one of the most well-known verses of all time, that we can begin to see some of this stuff that Jesus is laying out for Nicodemus, saying, you're not quite there, Nicodemus. There's got to be something that's going on beyond what you've already experienced. And just to, to show you where I'm going, Nicodemus, this is all going to hinge on the fact that I, as the Son of Man, will be lifted up for the sake of all of you. The story is not going, Nicodemus, in the way that you think it is going. I'm going in a new direction. Are you able to follow me? Are you able to adjust and to go where I am taking you? My prayer and my hope not only for me, but for the fine folks of TRP, is that we are always able to go where King Jesus is leading us and guiding us and moving us as a people. May our certitude crumble at his feet when he is moving us in a different direction. May we be open to the spirit leading and guiding May we understand where we came from and may we continue to be transformed here and now and may we never tire of doing the good that God is calling us to do and living in that way together. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.